Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, which brings us to 1990's re-release of Stephen King's The Stand. If you're just tuning in to this week, uh, welcome, everybody. Um, just so you know, if you haven't listened to any other episodes before, if you if you haven't listened to last week's episode, um, this particular episode is the second of a multi-part review that analyzes the thousand-plus page Great American Novel. Now, last week, um, in the first part of my stand review, I talked about the importance of this novel in context of King's uh, other works and focused heavily on the fact that it introduced the world to King's most enduring villain, Randall Flagg. I finished by providing a running commentary for the first book of the stand, Captain Trips. Now this week I'll examine book two on the border. But first, I'd like to share some listener emails. Um, I've there's been a bunch of emails that I just I have not gotten to um, read, um, and and they've kind of been building up in my mailbox. So I just want to take the opportunity to to read a couple. Um, emails and, and share the, the thoughts um, and feedback of some of uh, our listeners. If you haven't done so, honestly, feel free to write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to share your thoughts on Stephen King or thoughts on any of my reviews. And also, uh, if you haven't done so, providing a review on iTunes um, and an iTunes subscription to the podcast would help me out greatly in, in getting this podcast out there. So just... Uh, um, if you have some time on your hands and you're just not really doing much of anything, that would be awesome. But going back to the email, Ashley writes, I am listening to your review of Revival since I finished it and couldn't believe, um, I couldn't believe it when you mentioned the Pendergast series. Besides Stephen King, that's my favorite series of books ever. I started with Brimstone a long time back by mistake. I stumbled across it not realizing it was a series and fell in love. Lincoln and Child are the only other authors besides Stephen King that I tell people about all the time. They are so fantastic. I had to drop you an email because I couldn't believe that you had mentioned them. Constant reader reading just after sunset. Um, so actually, I not only did I mention um, Pendergast uh, earlier in the revival review... Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that I, I mentioned Pendergast last... When did I do Pendergast? Uh, oh, in the bonus episode, I believe, of The Dark Half, I had mentioned how um, the character Alan Pangborn, who goes on to star in Needful Things, in an alternate reality, he could have been um, a, a sort of Pendergast character or Jack Reacher or Repairman Jack or just one of those characters that an author will write um, episodic uh, stories about much in the way that Lincoln and Child write of, of Pendergast. Um, and if you have not read any of the special agent uh, Aloysius Pendergast novels, please do so because they're so much fun. Um, when this, this review is coming out, uh, it should be summer. Um, right now I'm recording it in, the, in April. 
but when it comes out, it should be summer. So I can't think of much better uh, beach reads and summer reads than the Lincoln and Child books. You would be doing yourself a disservice if you did not go out there and pick them up because they're fantastic. Um, Special Agent Pendergast uh, is an incredible character, so much fun to read about. Um, and the, the world is just populated with um, so much wonder um, and, and thrilling adventures that it's just, I, every year when uh, Lincoln and Child publish their, 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 their books, I, I get very, very excited. Um, probably more excited um, for Lincoln and Child books, to be perfectly honest, than, um, than, than King books. So that, that really should tell you how, how, much, uh, how strong I feel about uh, Lincoln and Child. So go out there and, and read what they've got because they're definitely a great talent. And Tyler writes, Greetings from Kansas. I have caught myself up on all the episodes I can without spoiling anything I have not read or seen. So far, I must say you have propelled my Stephen King fandom into another level. You have brought up things that I've recognized while reading many things I did not catch and many other things that make me question your sanity. Like not enjoying the breathing method. Sup with that. Minor disagreements aside, I find your podcast to be one of the more entertaining parts of my week. It's incredibly well-produced, very informative, with virtually no filler, all meat. Plus, we are often treated to a cameo from your dogs. I love it. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Tyler, um, so much. Um, as I've said in other um, episode, uh, yeah, other episodes, um, being an avid podcast listener myself, who looks forward to uh, weekly episodes of my favorite podcast as much as I look forward to uh, weekly episodes of my favorite television shows, um, when I hear people say that it's a um, it, that this podcast is something that people look forward to weekly. I, I still can't believe it. And I'm just, I'm very, very appreciative. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but he writes, uh, moving on, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, my question is when introducing Stephen King to a new reader, is there a strategy you'd recommend for beginners? Or do you suggest just jumping knee deep into the entire Dark Tower series like some kind of maniac? I've been working with kids for the last eight years and periodically meet one that is a big bookworm. If I introduce Stephen King works to them, I like for them to test the waters with a few short stories and novellas just to see if anything really catches their attention. From there, I might suggest other stuff based on their responses. So far, it's worked pretty well, and I know I have turned at least one kid into a bona fide constant reader. Sadly, many people still view King as strictly a horror writer. One kid I worked with was even forbidden by her mother to read King's work. I'm always trying to think of ways to get more of my kids interested in reading, not just his work, but in general. With technology living in a small town, the accessibility of drugs, and the lack of emphasis on broadening your horizons around here, it makes for some tough obstacles. Regardless, I am hopeful. You never know what kid might just need that story. I'm always coming across new characters and thinking, well, at least I'm not that guy. Maybe with such darkness, they can start to appreciate the light like yours truly. Um, that is a that's a heavy that's a heavy paragraph. Um, so to start, when it comes to recommending, um, I try to match the books to the person. Um, so I mean, I, I I think that it is probably the best um, example of a lot of his talents. But then again saying, hey, read this 1,100-page 1, um, novel about a small town um, might not be the way to go. However, it is completely engrossing, as evidenced by my three-part um, IT review. Um, 
so there's always it. Um, I would not recommend at all um, trying to get a, a non-Stephen King reader into the Dark Tower series, um, specifically because there's many Stephen King fans out there that just don't like the Dark Tower series. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I think that Needful Things is a strong example of what King is. Salem's Lot is very, very accessible for people um, because it's not alienating. It is familiar, the, the idea of vampires in a small town, um, and it's done so, so well. And it, I think that's a fantastic October read. It's a great Halloween book. So if you were to offer to have someone borrow it around Halloween, you know, I think that you would do a good job at selling people on Stephen King. Uh, so it, it really depends on who you are trying, you know, so I mean, if there was someone that just loved cars, right, then clearly you're going to want to go with uh, Christine or someone that's afraid of dogs, you might want to go with um, Cujo, uh, someone that likes sci-fi, crazy sci-fi stuff, then maybe you want to go with the, the, the Tommyknockers, you know, someone that, that likes government conspiracies, you might want to go with Firestarter. So it really all depends on what um, the, the person is looking for or what the, the person likes. That, that would be my recommendation. Um, and I hear you, you know, what you're saying, um, you just, you never know, you know, what book um, is going to do that for, for someone. And I've always said that everyone is just the right book away from being a lifelong reader. And I've just always considered um, that right book being like this magic key that opens a doorway and you just go into an imaginary world that you can go into whenever you feel like it. And there's a lot of people out there that, that just haven't found that key yet and they're just trapped behind one end of the door. Um, so, I, you know, thank you, Tyler, for trying to get people to, to get into to fiction and using their imagination. He continues, part of my personal list is as follows. I am the doorway, which I did not review in my uh, night shift um, review. And I am the doorway is the, for a lot of us, um, I know a lot of people out there have the um, original paperback edition of night shift and the cover is of someone's hand and it's all gauzed up um, and the gauzes are coming off and you can see all of the eyes on the fingers which is such a striking image and that's from I Am The Doorway. Battleground which is a lot of fun. Trucks um, which I will always mention was the basis for the awesomely titled 80s movie Maximum Overdrive starring Emilio Estevez, Quitters Inc., The Children of the Corn, The Mist, The Monkey, Mrs. Todd Shortcut, The Jaunt, my all-time favorite, the Man Who Would Not Shake Hands, Grandma, The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet, Dolan's Cadillac, Autopsy Room 4, 1408. I love 1408. That is not like many Stephen King books, by the way, or short stories, and I'll get to it um, when I get to Everything's Eventual, but in my remembrance of 1408, I definitively recall that it does not feel like Stephen King because it's so much more surreal and stream of conscious than he typically does. King does not do surreal very well, um, and this one feels like a like some uh, like acid trip. Um, and all of different seasons. As far as novels, I often suggest The Dead Zone to start with. I feel it gives a pretty decent range of what King has to offer. Just curious on your thoughts. As I said, keep up the great work. 
I look forward to meeting you again when you review the stand. So I figured that this would be um, a good time to, to, to read that review. So Tyler, thank you so much. Um, and, uh, you know, feel free to, to, to write in again. Okay, everyone. Um, I'm now going to jump back into my analysis of the stand. When last I left off, we had just concluded book one, um, Captain Trips. And now I will be begin with book two, On the Border, which begins with chapter 43. Now, the previous book had ended on an ominous beat uh, for many of our characters. Uh, Lloyd sells his soul and joins the Dark Man, who tells us that many are traveling west to meet him. Rita kills herself, and in the night, Larry hears the boot heels of our apocalyptic boogeyman. Stu, Franny, and Harold meet with a sense of danger from the possibilities of a love triangle. So the reader um, is still following this tonal thread when we begin with Nick, right? And when King writes of the corpse that sits up, we, like Nick, because of all of the beats that had just occurred, we expect the worst. The difference here is that King is playing with our expectation against us to create a comedic introduction to the much-beloved character, the one, the only Tom Cullen. Now, his pairing with Nick makes for King's all-time buddy team-up. You know, he must have had a grin on his face when he decided that Tom would be illiterate. So presently, we have a one-eyed deaf-mute and a mentally challenged illiterate gentle giant. It's through Nick's eyes that we meet Tom, but once he's introduced, King immediately switches point of view and the reader begins to experience their first encounter um, through Tom, showing us the difficulty he has at identifying what's wrong with the character we've come to know and love. It's an incredibly wise decision because King is able to provide, provide for us the thought process of Tom, uh, which can be found in the paperback edition um, of 402 to 403. So he writes, Most folks took Tom's sudden blankouts as a further sign of retardation, but there are actually instances of nearly normal thinking. The human thinking process is based on deduction and induction, and the retarded person... That's so, it's, it's, it's crazy reading this um, and just having that word thrown around like that, um, is incapable of making those deductive and inductive leaps. There are lines down somewhere inside, shortcuts sorted out, fouled switches. Tom Collin was not severely retarded and he was capable of making simple connections. Every now and then during his blackouts, he would be capable of making a more sophisticated inductive or deductive connection. He would feel the possibility of making such a connection the way a normal person will sometimes feel a name dancing right on the tip of his tongue. When it happened, Tom would dismiss his real world, which was nothing more or less than an instant-by-instant -instant flow of sensory input, and go into his mind. He would be like a man in a dark, in a darkened, unfamiliar room who holds the plug end of a lamp cord in one hand and who goes crawling around on the floor, bumping into things and feeling with his free hand for the electrical socket. And if he found it, he always didn't. He didn't always. There would be a burst of illumination and he would see the room, or the idea, plain. Tom was a sensory creature. A list of his favorite things would have included the taste of ice cream soda at Mr. Norton's fountain, watching a pretty girl in a short dress waiting on the corner to cross the street, the smell of lilac, the feel of silk. But more than any of these things, he loved the intangible. He loved that moment when the connection would be made, the switch cleared, the light would go on in the dark room. It didn't always happen. Often the connection eluded him. This time it didn't. 
Ah, oh, I mean, that's such a great way. Again, he he's, King is a master at visualization and his sense of imagery is impeccable. So I don't know what it's like to be Tom, um, to be handicapped in any which way. Um, but King is able to make it relatable because I think that we've all at some point tried to fumble around in the dark. And I just, I, it's a great way of just framing Tom for us. Now, a little bit about Tom. Um, now, in this novel, he's just flat out called retarded. And I'm not even, I'm not comfortable using that word, but that's, that's how it's referred to at the time. 1990 was a different time. We don't use that word anymore. The word is used here. But with our, I don't know, just with our, our science, with our psychology, um, I mean, we understand, um, delayed development a lot more. We understand, um, the autistic spectrum disorder. We, we, we understand so much more than I believe that we understood then. So here, Tom is dangerously close, and you can make the argument that's not even dangerously close. He's just in this, 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 this um, broad characterization, right? Almost a caricature of what someone would think a simple person is. And even saying simple, I mean, what what does that mean? You know. Um, you know, what is, what is the, the, the cause here? You know, what is the disability? Um, so I, it's just, it's just very, I mean, was he someone that, that suffered some sort of head injury as a child? Was he someone that was born this way? If so, what is the condition? Um, so I mean, the, these are things that it just makes me wonder as we head into the, the movie, uh, that will be coming out, uh, directed by Josh Boone, what they're going to do with Tom. Um, are they going to make him this just slow character, which I, I've just never really seen um, presented like this in life? Um, or are they going to update him and, and, and sort of fit him to a more familiar real-world um person i it's just it's just something that i just kept thinking about uh the the entire time with that said though i mean i as i mentioned in his introduction here i mean tom is a beloved character and i love this character and i love the pairing of nick and tom together um which you know invokes in some ways and i i don't necessarily think that it's purposeful the uh george and lenny of mice and men relationship um and it's 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 slight because the the characterization of both characters is is very very different from our characters here but the idea of um you know two guys on the road together you know one um one small and wiry and the other large and lumbering and like i said slow um is is very very reminiscent of of steinbeck so, King spends some time allowing us to witness the birth of their friendship, uh, of the joy each one has when communication um, commences despite their respective handicaps, and they are able to bond just in time because King is not going to give them a free pass just because they're handicapped. This is an equal opportunity apocalypse after all, and King gives them the equivalent of Larry in the tunnel, except this one isn't just terrifying, it's dangerous. 
The tornado scene that comes is harrowing. I've been wondering since the beginning of the book how they're going to capture Nick's affliction in the upcoming movie that I just referenced. Now, in the TV miniseries in 1994, I mean, we just saw Rob Lowe, you know, just be Rob Lowe and he, he didn't talk. But everyone, you know, talked around him. So I, and we understood that, you know, he was mute, he was deaf, but, um, but it, we didn't understand what it was like to, to be in his shoes. And I think that it would be very effective um, if we had that, that point of view of Nick every now and then in those moments where it matters. Um, I just think it'd be great if they, if Josh Boone played with the audio levels of the movie, you know, so, you know, what if the audio levels were normal when Nick is looking at someone, okay, and that would simulate the, the sensation of him being able to, you know, read the lips of everyone, he understands, but, you know, if he's turning away, you know, if just for a second he turns away and he looks at something, what if the audio just kicks out? and you don't hear anything and there's a conversation going on around us and we're not privy to it because he might be looking for something he might be looking at something um and then he might cut back and the conversation continues that i think would be very very effective um and the constant back and forth of sound and immediate silence would be just it would be a fantastic way to just recreate his deafness and in a scene like this Josh Boone could create a wonderful sense of chaos by intercutting from Nick and Tom's perspective. You know, I mean, if when they run down into the basement, you know, Tom is screaming um, and, you know, if and it's all dark and if, you know, Nick looks at uh, Tom and he's just screaming and, and then you hear the wind and the tornado coming and then it cuts and then Nick just turns his, his head and he's looking at the tornado and you see this giant black tornado coming at you, coming at us, but you can't hear anything because he's, he can't, he, you know, it's just stuff like that. I, I think that would be very, very effective. I think that'd be very, very innovative. Um, so I was just thinking about that as, as I was reading it. Just that intercutting back and forth of silence and screaming and silence and screaming. Anyway, it's a great scene, uh, the tornado scene. There is a natural menace and there is a supernatural menace as it turns out that each of them, just got goosebumps, each of them are convinced that the dark man was in the cellar with them. As if the sensation was a foreshadowing or a calling, they immediately encounter another human, um, if you want to call her that, I guess, uh, Julie Lowry, um, you know, so far, the survivors have only encountered those of their like. Harold, um, who is bratty with the potential for danger, is still otherwise good at this point. Um, you know, and, and he encounters Fran. You know, Fran encounters her. They know each other. She feels bad for him. But the two of them, they don't encounter a bad person. The first person they encounter is Stu. Um, Stu encounters Glenn. Nick encounters Tom. Um, so what's been happening so far is good meets up with good. Um, and on the flip side, Lloyd meets up with Flag. But here, King starts to stir things up. Now with Julie, they don't encounter your expected dangerous survivor. You know, your, your cannibals, your psychopaths, the, the ruthless survival type seen in fiction like The Walking Dead, right? You don't get your um, Gareth that his name of the cannibal you don't get your your governors you, you don't get that you know the guys that just claimed everything you don't you don't get those characters instead you get an oversexed mean-spirited 
teenager who has no sense of compassion or empathy towards others. Her inclusion into the relationship of Tom and Nick is offensive. Though she may not be a physical threat, her unpredictability is in some ways more dangerous than the tornado itself. And it's just mean. Like, just watching her, it's awful. It, it, you know, just... Nick is helpless in this scene. Tom is completely helpless in this scene and so vulnerable. And she's just stirring the pot and pushing their buttons and pinning them against each other. It's, it's awful to watch a human being who at the end of the world, makes the choice to be an awful human being. Um, she's a character that just really makes your, your gut churn. Um, you know, they survive their encounter with Julie, and soon after, their quartet grows when they are rescued by good old boy Ralph Bretner. Chapter 44. We cut back to Larry, who, after rising to the precipice of fame, um, living up an extravagant, uh, extravagant lifestyle he hadn't yet earned, returned home to a disappointed mother who realized, um, loved him, but never expected anything from him. After watching the world crumble around him, he finds his companion dead by her own hand in the same sleeping bag he shared with her and racked by nightmares of a devil, he finally starts to lose it. He's granted peace, um, with an idyllic New England nap, but this is a Stephen King book, remember? Um, as Larry sleeps, a mysterious boy emerges from the woods with a knife and is told to stop um, by an even more mysterious woman. And that woman, of course, is Nadine Cross, the destined wife of Randall Flagg. Nadine is immediately characterized as an alluring, smoldering, sensual character with her dark hair being her most uh, definitive trait. After the boy Joe tries to take Larry's life, Larry realizes that something in him has changed. This is reinforced by the fact that he's made it to the East Coast, right? The opposite end of the country where his problems had apexed. So just, I, I love the, the, the physical journey mirroring his emotional and character journey. Then Larry and Joe begin to bond over music, and the three characters discover Harold's sign in a gunquit. Knowing the dark future of Harold and Nadine, the discovery here is like a cloud passing over the summer sun. Three events occur back to back to back that just build off of each other. The first is that the three of them have a shared dream of Mother Abigail, who advises Nadine to turn away from her destiny and choose Larry instead. Then, the next day, Nadine is given that choice when Larry puts his arm around her. She rejects him. Immediately after that, Lucy Swan emerges. If Nadine had just given over to what she wanted... Larry, then Lucy and Larry never would have become an item. Nadine and Larry would be together. Mother Abigail um, might not have died. Uh, Nick certainly wouldn't. Not the way that he did. Um, Lucy is the first of all of her characters to acknowledge her dream, um, which understandably freaks everyone out. Even Nadine, who denies ever dreaming, which, you know, basically every reader just calls BS on. Chapter 45. At last, at last, we meet Mother Abigail, uh, the woman of our dreams. Uh, what's interesting about Mother Abigail is that though she is a beacon for mankind, she does not possess any supernatural ability in the way that Flag does. Um, you know, two lights in the night sky, and that's what they are. They're, they're just two beacons. They just could not be any more different from one another. 
Abigail Fremantle is not one of our primary characters. Um, she'll serve this story as our mentor to guide our characters to the final conflict. And in the hands of a lesser writer, she could have very easily have just been that sort of one-dimensional Yoda type, strumming on the guitar and spouting out rural-tinged advice to anyone that'll listen. King is wise in spending the time he does when we first meet the person, not the dream. Mother Abigail the dream may be larger than life, but Abigail Fremantle is still just a person, and she's one that we have to get to know if the story's title is going to matter. She's going to be the face of humanity, the best of what we can be, that for which we should strive, so it's imperative that we learn who she is. The story of her performance is electrifying and inspirational. It shows us that even as a young adult, she was imbued with a power. She commanded respect without having to command anything. Her presence is enough. She's the type of person that when she opens her mouth to talk, others naturally want to listen. Now, when I say power, it could be a power from God or the strength of her character or both, I suppose. Um, but this scene goes a long way in showing us who Abby Fremantle really is. Um, the scene that I'm talking about is um, it's a flashback scene to when she was younger. Um, late teens, early 20s, um, performing before her town um, with the guitar on stage of basically an all-white crowd. Um, and, you know, her entire family was afraid that something would happen, but she just owns it. And she just, like I said, commands respect. She's an honest woman who recognizes that she has a part to play, a large part, um, that she has been chosen, and she's afraid. You know, there's a deep sadness when she thinks of the fact that she knows that she's going to die out west, away from the home that she's made for herself for 108 years. A line like that couldn't work if King hadn't made us care about her or Hemming from home. And when she dreams of flag, um, look, King... <laughs> I, maybe more than any other character that he's ever written. I, I don't know. And that's probably why he just pops from book to book to book because King clearly, clearly loves writing about this character. Um, and his descriptions of Flag are just, they're just unlike anything else that, that he's, he's really written for most of his characters. Um, so, I mean, like on, on the bottom of 491, uh, King writes, and that was when she saw him the first time he was standing far back in the corner behind all of the seats his arms folded across his chest he was wearing jeans and a denim jacket with buttons on the pocket he was wearing dusty black boots with run-down heels boots that looked as if they had walked many a dark and dusty mile his forehead was white as gaslight his cheeks red with jolly blood his eyes blazing blue diamond chips sparkling with infernal good cheer, as if the imp of Satan had taken over the job of Kris Kringle. A hot and fleering grin had pulled his lips back from his teeth into something close to a snarl. The teeth were white and sharp and neat, like the teeth of a weasel. Um, and then on page 493, he writes, And then he spoke for the first time, he spoke... So then he spoke, for the first time he spoke aloud, and she could see his moon shadow, tall and hunched and grotesque, falling into the row she was walking. His voice was like the night wind that begins to moan through the old and fleshless corn stalks in October, 
like the very rattling of those old, white, and fertile corn stalks themselves as they seemed to speak of their end. It was a soft voice. It was the voice of doom. It said, I have your blood in my fists, old mother. If you pray to God, pray he takes you before you ever hear my feet coming up your steps. It was not you who brought music from the air, not you who brought water from the rock, and your blood is in my fists. King painstakingly details the ordeal of Abigail having to secure the chickens, which culminates um, with the weasels sent from Flag, like the Rottweilers from Damien in any of the Omen movies. Um, but remember that Mother Abigail isn't without her strength, and a quick prayer to God sends the weasels scurrying back into the darkness. And then King, remember, it's clearly inspired by, inspired by Tolkien here, um, and he's very upfront about that. He gives his best Tolkien impersonation by describing a great eye that searched for her from the West. And then Abigail is finally visited by one of our camps, and who should it be but Nick, who despite being the only one member of a now larger group, is clearly its center. And though he can't talk, is more, um, more than enough is spoken between he and Abigail upon their first meeting. With Abigail, King creates a redemptive character for all of his previous religious characters who have been, until this point, characterized by lunacy. Abigail is a character just as religious as Margaret White, for instance, but one who believes in the fact that she can't understand the machinations at work. She believes wholeheartedly in her God, so much so she will not question his word. But she also believes in the good of mankind as well, unlike the other devoutly religious characters um, in King's works. Though she loves her God, it doesn't mean that she doesn't express anger as well, because she does, um, and a hatred for burdening her with this task. You know, she understands that she doesn't have to like it, but is going to do it no matter what. Chapter 46. We check back in with Stu's camp, which reveals the growing tension between he and Harold, as well as the growing attraction between Stu and Franny. All of this is spun around the immediate threat of one of their group members having a highly exaggerated case of appendicitis here. Now, um, this isn't to say that it can't kill you, because an inflamed appendix can burst and release toxins throughout your body, but before they go ahead into the surgery, the pain is presented as agonizing. Now, having had, and the reason I can kind of criti criticize this a little bit is because I've had appendicitis myself. Um, you know, in fourth grade, and I can say that it's painful, but not nearly to the extent that's presented here. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I was almost to the point of my appendix rupturing, so it was pretty bad, and don't get me wrong, I was bent over in pain, I couldn't stand up, um, I was walking like a little old man, um, and you know, it was just like, it was, it was really bad pain, but I mean, the second that someone touches his stomach here, he, he's bellowing in pain, um, and to clarify here, the intensity comes not when you push down on the appendix, which is on the right side of your body at waistline, um, but when you release your hands after having already, you know, pressed down. Um, so with that, okay, so that's a nitpick. That's a nitpick because it's something I went through, whatever, no big deal. Um, but it's still a great scene, and it's one that's necessary here. I'm glad that Stephen King included it because, I, like I said, I got it in fourth grade. I have a little tiny scar. Um right by my hip bone um 
as everyone does that had their appendix taken out um, anytime before recently, because I guess it, it's a really simple procedure now. Um, but like I said, it's a simple procedure. It's a very, very simple procedure in our society. But when the society crumbles, what was once a simple procedure is is life and death. Um, in this case, it's death. Um, I mean, the, there is so much fear. Um, there is, and it's all just, just pointless because they, they, they have to cut the guy open. Um, no one knows what they're doing. It's awful. It's awful. And it really goes to show how something that we took for granted is now life-threatening. Anyway, um, King places us uh, right in Franny's brain through the depiction of her journal. Um, although he just doesn't remain there, you know, he'll flip uh, back and forth between the, the third and first person, and it's it's very, very effective um, by getting both of those perspectives, the first and the third, of, of Fran's growing attraction to Stu and her growing apprehension of Harold, who constantly remains a complex figure. You know, the tragic thing about Harold is that if he had just an ounce, just an ounce of self-confidence, he could have been one of the most important survivors. And he could have been one of the spiritual architects alongside Stu, Nick, and Larry who rebuilt a world. Unfortunately, he's gripped by a terminal case of constant overcompensation. He can never get out of his own way. Everyone around him treats him respectfully, hoping that at some point he'll lower his hackles, and in doing so, they demonstrate the patience of a saint. You know, they're all willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, even Stu, his rival, as evidenced on the top of page 569 of the um, paperback edition, Actually, at, at the bottom of 568, uh, Franny says, I want to avoid trouble with Harold, she said, and there's something else that, top of 569, uh, Stu, Stu says, Harold's got a ways to go, Stu said, but he's got the makings of a fine man somewhere inside him if he'll toughen, toughen up. You like him, don't you? You know, so, he, Stu kind of sensed right away the, the unpredictability of Harold, you know, just the fact that he wasn't necessarily in control of himself, but he has hope for this character, which really says a lot about what's in Harold and what's in Stu as well. Chapter 47. This scene, um, this is one that really gets me. Um, it's one that I believe is, um, very, very likely to occur in a catastrophic event. It's a situation um, that a rational, logical person fears when law and order are removed and chaos fills the void. You know, what levels will mankind stoop to when given the opportunity? Um, it seems like this that have made The Walking Dead the phenomenon that it is. Um, you know, it's, as much as people love the zombies, it's it, it's the governor that people talk about or uh, the members of Terminus. Um, at the end of the day, you don't need zombies. Or in this case, you don't need the dark man. Um, all you need is a group of rabid men. It's a scene that feels uh, more in line with Cormac McCarthy's The Road. In that novel, um, McCarthy explores the end of the world... Um, but 
in doing so, he also strips away any semblance of purpose or hope. Um, there's no wish fulfillment fantasy, as we see sometimes in you know something like The Walking Dead or Dawn of the Dead or or here um, in The Stand. Uh, that is just a bleak, bleak novel that includes characters not unlike the ones we see here. Now, what I'm talking about um, is that Stu and Franny, Harold, um, and Glenn encounter a group of men who have been imprisoning um, women for the purpose of just raping them over and over and over again. Um, it's a terrifying prospect, um, and having gotten to know Franny as well as we have, um, and also knowing that she's pregnant, you know, we it's just, it's terrifying to think of what would, um, happen to her. Um, but thankfully our, our heroes come out on top with, um, with a very, very messy shootout. And I'm glad that no one here is an expert markman. It's, um, something that drives me nuts in movies where, and it's, it's a criticism that I give to the, the walking dead all the time where everyone is, um, capable of just delivering a headshot every single time they fire a gun um it, it just drives me insane and here it's this is a sloppy sloppy mess of a gunfight um you know i anyway uh characters on both sides are just firing without hitting their targets um and and the fact that they can't really hit each other well and um it just it just creates uh chaos and confusion and panic now, upon the conclusion um, of the shootout, we, we meet three new characters, two of whom will play somewhat large roles in the novel, um, those two being Susan Stern and Dana Jurgens. Fran and Stu then have a heart-to-heart -heart in which she, uh, he shares his belief that Flag is crucifying people in the desert. Now, we haven't seen Flag in a, a while now, uh, last seeing him as he breaks Lloyd out of prison. And the distance from the character is a nice touch to let his mystery and danger grow for our good guys. And though everyone might see potential in Harold, this is where he begins to turn towards the dark side. Furious that Franny has chosen Stu, he reads her journal, which explains why the journal had been so important to this chapter. We've seen her thoughts of Harold, and Harold is even ready to kill Fran if she awakens. He's ready to go west. When he comes to this realization, he is visited by the great eye of Randall Flagg. Harold, who had had the potential for danger, is now completely dangerous, and more fittingly, I would say, a ticking time bomb. And chapter 48, um, it's a perfect baton handoff. We check back in with Trash, who is an absolute mess, his physical body matching his mind. Um, he's on his way to meet Flag, who has beckoned him to the desert. And during this section, Trash references the kid, a character who had been cut out of the original text, who quite frankly does not add anything to the narrative. The kid is King's channeling of Charles Starkweather, um, a remorseless serial killer. On one hand, the kid's inclusion shows how evil is bested by greater evil, but in the end, it's completely unnecessary. It's a mean, hard scene, and you can tell that King is enamored with the kid, um, clearly, because he reinserted the pages into this re-release, but with that said, um, 
all that said about any issue that I have with the kid, and I have a lot of issues with the kid. Um, I mean, his demise is, is a great moment of the book with the coming of the wolves and their escort of the trash can man to safety. Um, but going back to the kid, I, I don't really want to talk too much about it, but it includes a rape scene that is just highly... Um, it, it's, it's very unnecessary um, and, and disturbing. Um, like I said, it doesn't add anything. It doesn't grow... The trash, the trash can man's a character. All that it does is really just show how horrible the kid is and how he wants to overtake Las Vegas from Flag. So it just makes Flag um, more of a top dog. But we didn't need it. it. We didn't need it. And because the wolves never play a role in the novel again, it, I, we we don't, we don't need that scene with the wolves. It all of it is unnecessary. It does not help the book at all. In fact, because that scene is 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 really disturbing um i would say its inclusion actually hurts the novel um anyway uh king flip-flops between um trash cans man trash can man's time with the kid um and his arrival to las vegas he quickly meets lloyd who now is clearly among flag's hierarchy here, King demonstrates that he's not making this simple. Now, when you think of Las Vegas being the land of the American devil, you have an idea of what that will entail. Um, specifically, you probably imagine the ultimate hotbed of sin. Here, King shows that this will not be the case. Just like any deal with the devil, there is going to be a catch, and we learn that there's a pretty hefty catch. Flag lures you in, sure, but once he has you in, you live for the rest of your life, which probably will be pretty short, in constant fear. In this case, he will crucify you for drug use. King presents us with the best and the worst of Las Vegas. First, we see that Trash Can Man has finally found himself among people who can call him a friend. And then any good we will have is shattered when Trash is forced to crucify one of his new friends. Chapter 49. The wise move that King takes when crafting his chapters is allowing gaps in the narrative that we just don't need to see. Every time we check back in with one of the groups, something has changed in some way, whether a character has died or the group has gained new members. We check back in with Larry's group where we meet Judge Ferris, who functions as the wise mentor to this bunch, just as Glenn does for Stu and Mother Abigail herself to Nick's group. This chapter presents a different kind of love triangle. We've been used to the Harold, Franny, Stu triangle, but here we actually get a love quadrilateral, quadra, not quadrangle, right? Um, quadrilateral. It would be a quadrilateral, right? Um, actually, when you think about it, that's what both are. Um, both of our Harold, Franny, Stu, um, and the one I'm talking about, because both of our love plots here are connected. With Larry, it's clear that he's in love with Nadine, who seems to want him, but is completely unwilling to allow anything to happen. And then you have poor Lucy, who sees all of this, but is with Larry despite his obvious love for Nadine. The fourth side of this relationship, of course, is Flag. Likewise, for Harold, he is destined for a relationship with Nadine, who functions as the ghostly fourth side for Harold's love quadrilateral. As we check back in with Larry, we see a man conflicted with himself, but the thing about Larry is that despite any conflict, he's always honest with himself and with others. 
When he and Lucy have a conversation about how much he's in love with Nadine, he tells Lucy that he loves her as much as he can. Is that a brutal thing to say? Yeah. But is it honest? Yeah, very much so. And when it comes to Nadine, um, it's now confirmed that uh, she is destined to be uh, Flag's bride in a wonderfully written um, section on page 637. After the accident of the death of her parents, uh, she had gone to live with the aunt and uncle because they were the only two relatives, the White Mountains of eastern New Hampshire. She remembered that they had taken her for a ride on the Cog Railway up Mount Washington for her eighth birthday, and the altitude had caused a bloody nose, and then they had been angry with her. Aunt and uncle were too old. They had been in their mid-fifties when she turned 16, the year she had run fleetly through the dewy grass under the moon, the night of wine, when dreams condensed out of thin air like the night milk of fantasy, a love night, and if the boy caught her, she would have given him whatever prizes were hers to give, and what did it matter if he caught her? They had run. Wasn't that the important thing? But he hadn't caught her. A cloud had drifted over the moon. The dew began to feel clammy and unpleasant, frightening. The taste of wine in her mouth had somehow changed to the taste of electric spit, slightly sour. A kind of metamorphosis had taken place, a feeling that she should, must, wait. And where he had been then, her intended, her dark bridegroom? On what streets, what back roads, clocking along in outside suburban darkness, while inside the brittle clink of cocktail chatter broke the world into neat and rational sections. What cold winds were his, how many sticks of dynamite in his frayed pack sack. Who knew what name he had been when she was sixteen? How ancient was he? Where had been his home? What sort of mother had held him to her breast? She was only sure that he was an orphan as she was, his time still to come. He walked mostly on roads that hadn't even been laid down yet, when she had but one foot on those same roads. The junction where they would meet was far ahead. He was an American man, she knew that. A man who would have a taste for milk and apple pie. A man who would appreciate the homely beauty of, ren of red check and gingham? I don't know, gingham? His home was America, and his ways were the secret ways, the highways in hiding, the underground railways where directions are written in runes. He was the other man, the other face, the hard case, the dark man, the walking dude, and his run-down boot heels clocked along the perfumed ways of the summer night. Who knoweth when the bridegroom comes? I had mentioned Larry being a complex character, but man, oh man, Nadine. Poor Nadine, who was selected from possibly before birth. Um... You know, she is an orphan after all, um, and her backstory reads like something out of The Omen. Orphaned, her adopted parents dying in a driving accident, destined to marry the American devil. Part of her wants it because it's all she's ever known. Um, at this point, part of her DNA. But she knows deep down she, would re she should reject that part of her, you know, reject the dark man and embrace the fresh start of the Boulder Free Zone. And then there's chapter 50. We've, we've made it. We're here. We've made it to Boulder. And it's funny. Uh, you'd think that in the unabridged edition, you'd get certain moments, um, maybe of Nick and Mother Abigail arriving at Boulder or Stu arriving later and meeting them. 
King does not provide either of these moments, though. I mean, here we check in with Stu and Glenn after they've arrived at Boulder. They make mention of Nick, and Stu leans on his sociologist mentor uh, to predict the future of Boulder. It's a fascinating study of how the numbers would fluctuate um, in the post-apocalyptic America. And in the conversation, King explains how Flag, despite having lower numbers, will have the advantage. I think he's going to get most of the techies, Glenn said finally. Don't ask me why. Um, it's just a hunch. Except that tech people like to work in an atmosphere of tight discipline and linear goals for the most part. They like it when the trains run on time. What we've got here in Boulder right now is mass confusion. Everyone bopping along and doing his own thing, and we've got to do something about what my students would have called getting our shit together. But that other fellow, I, I bet he's got the trains running on time and all ducks in a row. And techies are just as human as the rest of us. They'll go where they're wanted the most. Got suspicion that our adversary wants as many as he can. F the farmers, he'd just as soon have a few men who can dust off Idaho missile silos and get them operational again. Ditto tanks and helicopters and maybe a B-52 bomber or two just for chuckles. I doubt if he's gotten that far. Yeah, in fact, I'm sure of it. We'd know. Right now, he's probably still concentrating on getting the power back, reestablishing communications, or maybe he's even had to indulge a purge of the faint-hearted. Rome wasn't built in a day, and he'll know that. He has time. But when I watch the sun go down at night, I get scared. I don't need bad dreams to scare me anymore. All I have to do is think of them over there on the other side of the Rockies, busy as little bees. Um, in fact, this might be the most important scene in the middle section of the novel. Um, and this scene alone more than justifies Glenn Bateman's presence in the book. Glenn single-handedly guides the future of the Boulder Free Zone by giving Stu the blueprints to build a government. And here Stu demonstrates his leadership abilities. A leader knows that he doesn't have all the answers and will seek out those that do, in this case Glenn. He knows that Boulder has to start building, but doesn't know how. He knows that in order to think big picture, they're going to need a mind who can envision interlocking systems like Glenn. This section may very well function as the thematic crux of the novel. As we know, the impetus was for King to write Lord of the Rings in America. A benefit of that is, with this concept, he's able to comment on America in ways that Tolkien wouldn't have been able to due to the fact that his story had taken place in a fantasy land. And yes, I know, um, he wouldn't have been inclined to comment on America as a king due to his being British. And yes, I know that the Lord of Rings uh, was a series that was full of commentary on modern life, but this is a little different. With this conversation, Glenn is able to separate the government from America. The land, he explains, is America. But what we once thought of America was a more complex concept that just doesn't exist anymore. Before the plague, the country, meaning the land, was inseparable from the ideal and the government functions of the country. Here, Glenn makes the case for government in a land without law, and with this, we are watching the new founding fathers on the precipice of a new society. Like Glenn says, it's very important that the first thing we do is ratify the spirit of the old society. And hilariously enough, when given the opportunity to create a new society, Glenn suggests a method of pulling strings in order to get the right people elected. Even in a new world, some things don't change. 
Though we are never given the meeting between Stu with Mother Abigail, we do get to witness the meeting of Larry and Mother Abigail, which, honestly, now that I say it, it, it makes more sense. I mean, he's the character who, after all, in pre-Pig life, um, ran across the country to find his mother, so, again, he travels across the country to find another, now different mother. Now, you know, when he finds another mother, he's a different man, you know? So one Larry went across the country to find one mother, and now a different Larry goes to find a different mother. And with Larry, um, we have Nadine. The meeting between Nadine and Mother Abigail is electric, each one peering into each other's soul. And during this moment, Mother Abigail has an inner conflict, one that reveals the classic tragic flaw that will cost Nick and the others their lives. When given the chance to get to the bottom of Nadine Cross, or turn the thought aside in order to greet the next person she chooses to greet the next person, an example of her choosing her own pride over what needed to be done. When focusing back on Nick, we are given a scene in which he shows that his mind is cannier than we had previously thought. We had known that he was whip-smart and intuitive uh, for survival purposes, but now we see a previously unseen knack for politics. First, he instinctively knows that Harold should not be on the ad hoc committee and replaces him with Ralph, knowing that if Stu, Franny, um, Glenn, and Susan had a problem with it, they couldn't do anything about it because they would have to concede that the committee was already packed with members of their group. But of course, he isn't just playing hardball to play hardball. He wisely doesn't trust Harold and thinks that he's crazy. King demonstrates that Nick's um, preternatural sense of perception, observing how Franny looks uncomfortably at Harold and how gr Harold grins too much. Now that King has established the characters, he's packing these chapters with so much they're bursting at the seams. It's here when Franny's concern escalates. Franny's first dilemma was surviving in the apocalypse while pregnant. Well, now that she's found a safe home, the conflict is rendered pretty moot. At this point, she's safe. She's protected, at least for the time being, from flag by the mountains. Uh, she's part of uh, a rebuilding effort. She's finished the crossing line to find Mother Abigail, her beacon in the night. Franny is safe, so her original conflict is now toothless. King knows that he has to up the ante, so he brings what might have been lurking in the background right up to the foreground. Now that she's safe, she doesn't have to worry about having the baby. What she has to worry about whether or not the baby will even be immune to the super flu. What began as a very personal issue, a young woman struggling with pregnancy, is now going to make or break the society that she is now trying to raise from the ashes. If she gives birth and the baby dies, then there's no hope for the superflu survivors. The newly established world would dissolve into chaos, and it wouldn't matter if Flag is defeated or not, the world would end in loneliness and bloodshed, all because the life and death of one particular child, her child. Like I said earlier, we didn't witness the meeting of Stu and Franny's group with Nick's group. Um, but we do get to watch Larry meet everyone, and his meeting with Franny is fun and light and cute, and very, very purposeful. First, it has Larry approaching Franny's place, and they meet with her on the balcony, he below in the street. It results with Larry tripping and falling backward, and Franny accidentally breaking a potted plant. Now this has to be 
a mirror image to Larry's disastrous one-night stand when Larry was branded not a nice guy and narrowly escaped the woman's apartment when she threw projectile missiles at him. Rather than running, he's coming. Rather than an ugly confrontation, it's a quiet, honest meeting. It's another example of Larry's growth. Though it might mark the first meeting between the two, it's really all about Harold and the image of Harold that does not really exist. After Larry tells his story about surviving because of Harold, he senses that there's something wrong about what he's pictured this entire time, one that Franny is not comfortable telling him. Chapter 51. Larry's tour around Boulder continues, this time meeting with Harold. Kids are BS detectors, and something about Leo reacts negatively to Harold. He can't even be in the same vicinity as him. And when inside, Larry spots Harold's ledger behind one of the hidden stones. King doesn't spend much time on this detail, but it'll one that'll come back with greater importance later on. Later, Stu and Franny discuss the possibility of Larry joining the committee, and just because we love the characters at this point doesn't mean that they're going to like or trust each other. Stu brings up a great point, one that I personally believe in, and that's that he doesn't trust Larry right away because he shared basically his life story the first time he met Franny. Despite that hesitation, he's willing to allow Larry on the committee but only after Larry shares how he feels about meeting Harold. And after their meeting with each other, Stu offers their position to Larry. Again, I like the fact that there isn't an initial connection between our characters. They've come from different places, and despite winding up in the free zone, they couldn't be any more different from each other. These differences don't allow for immediate friendships. And Larry, being the honest being that he is, immediately objects to the secretive nature of the committee. But it isn't as simple as honest versus lying or truth and secrets because Stu brings up a very legitimate point about planning warfare on the man in black, and Larry agrees to come along. Franny, meanwhile, discovers that Harold has read her diary, um, and the book is just really chugging along at this point. Which brings us to our first committee meeting. Now, anyone that has ever sat through committee meetings will tell you that you wouldn't think they would make for interesting fiction. Um, but King makes it work. Namely because they are voting on policies that will impact the fate of the world. Um, and he even plays with the structure of the narrative, suddenly changing the format into that of a transcript from Franny's notes. The next major plot point comes about in this meeting, uh, the idea to send the three spies in the Flag's camp. It's a hard conversation, but it's almost unbearable to read when Nick offers to send Tom. From Franny's perspective, it's cold of Nick to do so, but having spent enough time with Tom and Nick together, we can easily imagine the pain that Nick must feel at suggesting this. I mean, Nick's argument is sound. It does make sense Tom would make for the best spy, and his, ex you know, and, and the excuse that Tom would give to Las Vegas, Las Vegas residents, I can see the Las Vegas residents believing that, that Tom was sent out because of his condition that the Boulder residents wouldn't want him to impregnate anyone in town. It's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Chapter 52. Um, here we go. Uh, this is where the end really begins. Uh, Mother Abigail realizes that she's grown too complacent and has lost touch with her God. As a result, she decides to head into the wilderness to rediscover what needs to be done. We check back in with Harold, who is a full acolyte of Flag. All he wants to do is go west, but knows that he'll be killed if he doesn't make his presence known in Boulder first. 
He's ready to kill Stu and Ralph, and almost does, um, but he's interrupted by the unexpected revival um, arrival of Glenn and Nick. Got your tissues ready? Because you're going to need them. Um, it's the unexpected return of Kojak, Glenn's dog that he had left behind in New Hampshire, who traveled all the way across the country to reunite with Glenn. After a tender reunion, King dedicates a few pages to Kodak, Kojak's journey, um, and it's a refreshing reprieve from the tension that's been escalating. It's a wonderful, wonderful section. Um, that just... You know, uh, Dean Koontz gets a lot of uh, crap for just writing about Golden Retrievers. Um, but, I don't know. I mean, dogs are awesome. And I have no issues when, when they're inserted into books. Chapter 53. King returns to the transcript format that he'd introduced during the first committee meeting. It's agreed upon that um, they're going to lead a search party for Mother Abigail. And then it comes time for the first public council meeting. And when Stu comes out on stage to thunderous applause, it's hard to not get swept up in that moment. It's not necessarily for Stu, but for what Stu represents. Order, government, safety. We're applauding ourselves, Larry thought. We're applauding the fact that we're here alive together. Maybe we're saying hello to the group self again, I don't know. Hello, Boulder. Finally. Good to be here. Great to be alive. And if you've ever been to a town meeting, they are not uh, very fun. Um, but this one's different. This one is important. And uh, King loads it with importance and emotion, uh, knowing um, that he's going to write a book about America. He is going to have to include the national anthem somewhere. And boy, does he. Then the other voices joined in. And Lucy was singing, holding his hand, crying again, and others were crying. Most of them were crying, crying for what was lost and bitter, the runaway American dream, chrome-wheeled, fuel-injected, and stepping out over the line. And suddenly his memory was not of Rita, dead in the tent, but of he and his mother at Yankee Stadium. It was September 29th. The Yankees were only a game and a half behind the Red Sox, and all things were still possible. There were 55,000 people in the stadium, all standing, the players in the field with their caps over their hearts. Ricky Henderson was standing in deep left field, and the light standards were on in the purple gloaming, Mouths, moths and night flyers banging softly against them, and New York was around them, teeming city of night and light. Larry joined the singing too, and when it was done and the applause rolled out once more, he was crying a bit himself. Rita was gone. Alice Underwood was gone. New York was gone. America was gone. Even if they could defeat Randall Flagg, whatever they might make would never be the same as that world of dark streets and bright dreams. After the committee is officially formed by a suggestion of Harold, no less, Nadine presents herself to Larry. It's the last temptation of Larry Underwood. And it's a moment that will bring about salvation for one and damnation for the other. If Larry submits, then he gives into his selfish side because now Lucy is the woman for his new self. If he submits, he would revert to the taker that his mother had called him, the not-nice guy that had been his branding before society collapsed. Conversely, if Nadine gives in, she is free of Randall Flagg, his dark spell broken. If Larry doesn't agree, then she is damned. 
for one to be redeemed, the other must be damned. And in this case, in the face of his greatest temptation, Larry chooses salvation. After his uh, rejection of her, Nadine moves in with Harold, which is hilarious. Here you have the two whack jobs in town that no one is really comfortable with, one of whom was basically given the evil eye from Mother Abigail upon her arrival to the free zone, and no one really seems to care that they've hooked up. Chapter 54. At the next committee meeting, they discuss the possibility of imprisoning those that are supporters of the Dark Man, along with placing Stu in charge of law and order. Here's where King presents the reality of the post-civilized world. It's not as if because all the quote-unquote bad people go to Las Vegas that nothing bad will happen in the Free Zone. First, just because a person drifted to Vegas doesn't mean that they're evil. Maybe easily tempted, weak, or frightened, yes. Um, but like Glenn had said, you know, a lot of the techies have been drawn there because they just kind of need that order. Because that's where they're needed. Secondly, just because a person followed Mother Abigail doesn't mean that they aren't flawed. The committee discusses the cases of lawlessness and how people might be prone to take advantage if law isn't imposed. We then visit Harold along with the rest of the burial committee as King details the gruesome acts of removing and burying the dead. Harold doesn't expect to become part of the group, feeling welcomed by the rest of them. The feeling of being wanted and needed frightens him, as if that wasn't part of his plan. And just in case he had thoughts of defecting to the free zone, when he returns home, he's greeted by Nadine Cross. And as King writes, he succumbed to his destiny. Chapter 55. When Larry meets up with the judge, King shows us the judge wily mind. The judge, of course, has already figured out for himself what the committee had agreed upon and understood that Larry had come to ask him to spy for the free zone. It's a triumphant little scene where we get a good sense of the judge, and knowing his fate renders it through a very sad lens. Ultimately, it makes me wish that we had more of this character throughout the novel. Uh, maybe, I guess, he's too similar in ways to Glenn, and more time spent with the judge would only reveal that more clearly. Or maybe not, I don't know. Regardless, this is a great scene between characters, and it's necessary in showing the judge's mind, and despite his being over 70, his strength. And if the judge's goodbye is hard to read, then Tom's is impossible. When Stu has to give him the hypnosis instructions, it's absolutely brutal. It's a very difficult scene to read. Um, and when hypnotized, Tom reveals that when hypnotized, he's God's Tom. He knows things that he could never know. It's a really effective scene in many ways. Um, one of the novel's greatest fears comes bolting to the forefront as Ralph tells Stu that there was an incoming pregnant woman who had lost her babies. Nadine encounters Leo, who has reverted to his Joe persona, and while she tries to explain why she's leaving, uh, she can't help but throw a few digs in at Lucy. After another public committee meeting, one thing is clear. Uh, the committee is great at making committees. Uh, it's understandable how King developed writer's block during this section. Even though the characters are making decisions to send spies out west and everyone is doing something, everything feels inert. You get the sense that the wheels are spinning but not gaining any traction. When the topic of Dana Jurgens heading west comes up, Sue tells them of Dana's assassination plot of Flag. Again, it's something. Killed is, you know, King is building his house of cards, but sometimes having to watch the building it is not very fun. Lastly, the gang tells Tom that it's time to go. Um, it's heartbreaking. 
And meanwhile, Harold designs King's solution to the speeding the book along, the bomb that will prompt our characters to spring into action. Chapter 57. Larry realizes that Leo has some psychic ability as he begins to speak around their relationship between Harold, Nadine, and Flag. The urgency ramps up as Leo implores Larry to speak to Franny, although he can't say why. Franny and Larry meet, and they come to the conclusion that Harold has been keeping a ledger. The two of them make the fateful decision to sit on it without consulting the recently elected Marshal of the Free Zone, Stu. It's a boneheaded move on their part, one that will get too many people killed. Franny and Larry find the ledger, and Flag warns Nadine that they've discovered it. Chapter 58. After Stu finds out about the ledger, which reveals that Harold and Nadine are planning something, Stu still doesn't do anything about it. This has to be purposeful, that their inaction is as much responsible for the upcoming deaths as the bomb itself is. As the committee meeting um, commences, Fran is overtaken by the urge to get them out of the house, that something is dreadfully wrong. She's able to get everyone out of the house, but Nick who instinctively knows that there's something in the closet, um, runs to the closet. Nick here is the major death of this section, uh, and it's like we lose the heart of the novel. Now, with that said, um, this death is pretty manufactured. Him staying behind while everyone runs out of the house does not fulfill any real purpose other than the fact that King knows that he has to die. Um, it's a meaningless death, which is unfortunate for the character, but works, I guess, on a thematic level. Um, Nick dying in the committee meeting only goes to show how meaningless their efforts have been. Um, the bomb, combined with Mother Abigail's return, is the one-two punch that our characters need to do something about Flag. Now, a little side note, when I was reading it for the first... I'm sorry, when I was reading The Stand for the first time, um, you know, my, my parents had read it uh, before I had. Um, you know, I'm chugging along, chugging along, and like... You know, like, Nick is my favorite character, and I am so invested in this book. I mean, when I was younger, you know, in my early teens, um, when I read books, I plugged into those books so much more than I plug into them now. You know, they, they just, the characters came to life. I felt like I was there. I mean, my level of enjoyment and my level of interaction with the novels, just, it, nowadays, it's just not the same. So, when I loved Nick, like, he was awesome. Like, he was my favorite character of all time at that point. And so at one point, you know, my dad comes over and he's like, so, how's, how's the stand going? And I'm like, oh, it's good. He goes, so, is, uh, is Nick dead yet? And I didn't respond. Like, my mouth just, like, dropped and my eyes bugged out. And then my mom overheard it and she just started yelling at my dad. So, I mean, it, when I think of the stand, I just always think of, so, is Nick dead yet? Um, anyway, chapter 59. Uh, Stu fills Fran in on the casualties and worries about why Mother Abigail has returned. Um, whatever the reason is, he knows that it can't be good. Meanwhile, Larry naturally blames himself for the bomb. Not because it's his fault, but that's just because of the kind of guy that he is. The explosion was a devastating blow to the community. Uh, the faith in both the committee and Mother Abigail is shattered. Their fear of flag is overriding their belief in themselves. The fear that the citizens are feeling cause a growing unrest, a building charge of chaos that threatens to overtake the natural order that the committee had worked so hard to build. It's only because of Stu's orderly nature that he's able to tame the chaotic nature of the free zone citizens. And he's barely able to do that. I'm going to speak about chaos later 
upon the conclusion of my running commentary on the book. But what it comes down to is the fact that Flag doesn't recruit evil. And he doesn't necessarily spread evil. Flag deals in chaos as present in this particular scene. Glenn, being the sociologist that he is, uh, knows how groups of people will act, think, and function um, at a particular time. And knowing that the recent events um, would begin to create a growing unrest, uh, he knows how to rein the crowd back in. After bringing up the Dark Man publicly, he presents the information that they've acquired and publicly name him Randall Flagg. The simple act has the opposite effect of Harry Potter's nemesis, Voldemort, he who must not be named, as if simply mentioning Voldemort will give him power. Conversely, naming Randall Flagg strips him of his dark man mystique. In some ways, he's trivialized. He's gone from being a devil to a man. What Glenn does is rebuild the order that had begun to become lost amidst the chaos. Glenn was both amazed and heartened by their growing willingness to talk and, the, and by the charged atmosphere of excitement that had taken over the dull blankness with which they had begun the meeting. A large catharsis long overdue was going on, and he was also reminded of sex talk but in a different way. They talk like people, he thought, who have kept the huddled up secrets of their guilts and inadequacies to themselves for a long time, only to discover that these things, when verbalized, were only life-sized after all. When the inner terror sowed in sleep was finally harvested in this marathon public discussion, the terror became more manageable, perhaps even conquerable. The meeting broke up at 1.30 in the morning, and Glenn left it with Stu, feeling good for the first time since Nick's death. He left feeling they had gone the first steps out of themselves and toward whatever battleground there would be. He felt hope. They are then called to Mother Abigail, who they are afraid to see, not because they don't want to see her, but because of what she is going to tell them. Until now, they've all been rational people, but they know that they're going to have to face the irrational, namely, the concept that the force that has been guiding Mother Abigail is real and will speak to them through her. And man, does she put them in their places. Electric lights ain't the answer, Stu Redman. CB ain't it either, Ralph Bretner. Sociology won't end it, Glenn Bateman. And you doing penance for a life that's long since a closed book won't stop it from coming, Larry Underwood. And your boy child won't stop it either, Fran Goldsmith. The bad moon has risen. You propose nothing in the sight of God. Mother Abigail then lays it on the line. Stu, Larry, Ralph, and Glenn are tasked with going west to kill Randall Flagg. Franny naturally objects and has it out with Mother Abigail. Soon to be a mother herself, her concern is for the safety of her unborn child and the man who will help her raise it. Abigail's God proves himself by relieving Franny of pain, but Franny wants no part of this. Abigail states that the end game, which consists of the four of them heading out west without food, water, or supplies on foot. King teases the unknown, stating that one of them will not make it, and the future of all of them is up in the air. It will help create a mysterious tension as we head into our final hundred pages or so, and the thrust of the book is revealed in this section. The four of them are meant to go to Las Vegas in order to stand against Flag, and what stand will look like or what its conclusion will entail is completely unknown. Stu is to lead them on the West, on a holy mission delivered with the voice of God they had not really believed in. 
The one who was meant to lead, Nick, is dead. And now it's up to Stu. Franny, um... Franny in the scene, I, I get it. I mean, she's not supposed to react well, but by the time the chapter closes, with her having Stu swear he'll return on Nick's dried blood in the shattered backyard where the bomb had gone off, it really tips into melodrama. The Force set off, and reading it feels very much like reading about four hobbits heading off into the shadow of Mordor. Tolkien's influence is very apparent in this scene. And now that the logic of civilization has been stripped away from the novel, revealing magic and gods beneath that had always been beneath, the novel reminds us again that despite the, the familiar setting, this is very much a fantasy tale set within the ruins of the United States of America. All right, everyone. Um, all I have left to really review at this point is the, the last book, uh, which is book three, The Stand. Um, I will get to that next week in my review as I wrap up um, this Stephen King masterpiece. So next week I will review the final book and I will get into Easter eggs, Kingisms, um, and then some character breakdowns. So thank you everyone for sticking around for part two of this three-part review. Um, and if you have not done so, please feel free to uh, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Feel free to follow me and write a review on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Twitter, on uh, Tumblr. You can find me in all those places. And I will see you here. Same King time, same King channel. M-O-O-N, spelled Stephen Kingcast. Don't believe we're on the eve of destruction.